Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This much-anticipated episode featured present and former serving black police officers who shared their views on the Black Lives Matter movement, institutional racism, stop and search and other related law and order issues. This event is hosted by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, known as CTBI. Um, also, I want to thank Richard Reddy and also Bob Fife, the CTBI General Secretary. I am Rosemary Mallet. I'm the Archdeacon of Croydon for the Southwark, uh, Diocese of Southwark. With us this evening, we've got four stellar presenters. We've got Leroy Logan, MBE. We've got Janet Hills. We've got Bevan Powell, MBE. And we've got Deborah Akinloan, QPM. We're going to have an amazing evening. There's over 286 people registered to be with wow. us this evening. What an amazing number. And they're here to hear our speakers. So I think let's just go straight into it and let's have uh, Leroy Logan, MBE, kick us off with his 10 minutes, please. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully everyone can hear me. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be invited by um, such a great initiative. CTBI has been there in, in really important issues um, affecting the church and the wider community. And um, I just want to, uh, you know, say I'm, I'm really humbled to be amongst uh, my other panelists. And, and one of the things I, I wanted to say in the first instance that um, uh, we have a great God, e even though we are in challenging times. And um, the way in which 2020 started, you would have thought, well, you know, it's going to be um, a non-challenging year, but it's, it's been a challenging year. And for wider society, um, not only COVID, but um, the issues around George Floyd and how he was publicly lynched, as far as I'm concerned, and that having a massive impact on officers, whether retired or not, because I myself felt a real sense of pain. In fact, I cried when I saw that. And I thought, where's policing gone? And what it's the implications for black officers and black police staff members who are currently in the organization. And I remember when I went to the Black Lives Matter march in June, I went there in solidarity because even though um, I'm a retired officer the last seven years, I really felt that there was a need to show my disgust, my alliance to Black Lives Matter, even though I might not totally agree with everything they say and do, but I wanted to show that officers felt their pain. And for me, the underlying issue was 
is the knee on the neck of black officers. Do they feel a sense of they can't breathe? And why I say that is because when we set up the Black Police Association, we launched in September 94, it was a sense of we have an opportunity for our voices to be heard. Not self-serving just to see the advancement of black offices or black police staff in the, the organization, but to say how we could give back to our community. And I really believe that work is so critical today. To be that critical friend to the commissioner and the senior leadership team, but also be an advocate for change, not only internally, but for the community, especially the black community, and to show how we as officers build bridges and not barriers. And that I believe is not being recognized as, as it should. And I know Janet, the current chair may speak about that. But I want to say that we as officers in public service, especially in the Black Police Association, we are activists and advocates. And that continues till this very day. And as a Christian officer, I felt an even greater desire to make changes, knowing that it's God's work and we're carrying out his purpose. And when that really crystallized for me was in 1994, the same year we launched the, the Black Police Association and we said that we were gonna stand firm on our overarching aims to hold the organization to account. And I knew then through a, a service conducted by Jesse Jackson over here in London, that this was a commission. And I tried to highlight that in my autobiography, um, Closing Ranks, because I know that the perspective of black officers have been narrated so many times by people who haven't really understood why we were there and what we were trying to do. And especially from a faith perspective, because I grappled with this book. I said, do I really want to show my faith, my, my faith on the sleeve as it were, but I knew that was the way in which I had to show what I was going to do as a black officer. So this is 1994 and the rest is, is been well documented, but I'll just highlight the fact that my, my, myself and Bevan and another colleague, Paul Wilson, we gave evidence at the McPherson inquiry to say it as it is, the Met Police was institutionally racist. Also, we have helped in so many inquiries. And as, as you know, um, only two days ago, we were celebrating um, the life of Damalola Taylor and mourning is lost 20 years now. And we used an excellent team of black officers, which included Janet and, and, and Deborah 
who showed their diversity in action to break down barriers and to help with those house to house, which identified the suspects and eventually led to a conviction. So for me, it's showing our, our worth in, in our presence as individuals, but as collectively as an organization and being in solidarity to ensure that we're not being used and abused and to look at modernizing the police service because I know that if you don't measure progress, it won't get done. And if there's anything that the McPherson inquiry and the recommendations from that, when we had independent oversight and we saw officers conduct themselves so differently with family liaison officers, independent advisors, strategic command course, um, um, critical incidents training. And, and we did that nationally, just not just in London and also the Race Relations Amendment Act, how that was enacted and we developed that. So we were showing strategic as well as operational added value. And even though we have done that, they still came looking for us because you know, you put your head above the parapet and you're on someone's target. And I myself was investigated and others have been investigated. In fact, we have a real problem now with officers being investigated, especially at senior ranks, disproportionate to their white officers. But that calling of service continues. We still have black officers and black police staff in the organization wanting to make changes for the better. And they want to build bridges with the black community and prevent all those disproportionalities we know are still outstanding. And we know that the police service is still institutionally racist and we will work towards that. Even in retirement, we are still working. But one of the key things um, I believe needs to be addressed is our young people. We know that the issues of knife crime and violence and how it's linked with negative peer groups which can lead to gangs is a real plight. And I, I know that Again, we as officers, especially the Black Police Association, the Charitable Trust, and now Voyage Youth, we're giving back to our young people. Because again, we, we feel it, we know it, we're gonna do something about it. And we have the Voyage Youth concept, which uh, again, is second to none in terms of an accredited program of young leaders for safer cities. And Bevan uh, and myself started that, and it's still going 20 years later, and we're going from strength to strength. And I stepped down this chair only a few weeks ago. I'm now a patron, but we are still contributing to our young people, and we have to do for self and ensure that officers don't think of, well, it's just for me as a public servant. We have to give back. And in closing, I, I, I want to end by saying the, there's nothing wrong with the Met or any other force area that can't be rectified by what's good with it. I've seen the Met in, in excellent 
ways it's dealt with things. Look, look at the Olympic Games. That was my last operational command and how that was an amazing event. And, you know, it, it made th those games historical, enjoyable and crime-free relatively. I want to see that light touch in policing. I don't want to see the heavy-handed policing we're, we're seeing now. And I want to see that resumed where the leadership of the Met is starting to understand the type of policing that's happening at the moment, that firefighting policing, that excessive use of force, etc. And, and I really believe there's something happening. And I'm not just putting it down to red, white and blue on Sunday, but I got a tweet yesterday from a senior leader in the Met who responded to a, a tweet that I posted weeks ago, but he responded to it to say, listen, red, white and blue made him think not only what's happened in the past, but what's happening now and how that's going to influence his implementation of the mayor's action plan. So I write, I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. And I know every other officer who was feeling they can't breathe because of the knee on the neck, whether it's internally not being able to achieve the true potential or what, but they are saying, well, listen, we need to step up. And I, I really believe we need to give them their prayers because it's such an important time. And I know the church is a, a force for good that can really make a difference. And I look forward to the rest of the panelists and the questions thereafter. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leroy. You didn't need any introduction because I should think many of us, all of us and most many in the country were watching Red, White and Blue on Sunday. So thank you so much. Our next speaker is going to be Janet Hills, who is the current chairperson of the Metropolitan Black Police Association and a serving police officer with 29 years of service. Janet has worked in various units within the Criminal Investigations Department at Brixton and Sutton Police Station and five years of specialist operations and a whole pile of other things that she has done. She's the strategic lead for the Met BPA and it says it's her ambition that the association remains relevant in the 21st century. So maybe we're going to hear a little bit about how she's going to keep it relevant. Janet, over to you. So what I will say is that I, I haven't prepared a, a speech or anything to say and um, uh, I'm going to make up some time because we all know that Leroy can chat. So um, <laughs> I'm going to make up some time on that. What I will also want to note for the record and for the recording is that the other speakers, I am truly privileged to be on a platform with Leroy, Bevan and Deborah. Uh, we don't often get together in this space, uh, but I will note for the recording that the other three speakers actually have letters after their name. So just in case anyone's listening and they might want to add that to my portfolio. But anyway, moving on. So, you know, what's happened this year for me has been unprecedented and I'm sure it's been the same for a lot of people. Um, you know, I when I came on board as the chair in 2013, you know, I knew that I was carrying a, a legacy from the likes of Leroy Bevan, Paul and all of the chairs that have gone before. And it was a heavy, heavy weight on my shoulders to 
keep up the good work that they had done. And as being the first female as well, again, you know, it, it kind of opened my eyes to uh, a number of things in terms of policing that became visible. What I like about this platform um, is the fact that I met um, Reverend Les, Gray, Les Isaac, sorry, um, at a meeting, he completely latched on to me and then Richard was there sort of like emailing me in the background where I did a, a blog. Um, I, I don't often write things and I don't often talk for too long, um, but, you know, he asked me to do a blog um, around my sort of life in, in policing. And it, it boils down to what we don't often talk about is the intersectionality. So we're talking about race and faith here, which are definitely interlinked and entwined, but then a lot of the protected characteristics are. So as again, a black female in the organization, we look at it as a gender issue or we look at it as a race issue and we don't necessarily put the two together. And when we don't do that, what happens is gaps are formed. And in terms of black women and representation in policing, our numbers have basically stayed the same and if not got lower because we focus on recruiting gender and making sure that that, but that in the main is our white female counterparts. And then similarly, when we look at black and Asian, you know, that tends to then go to the men and the black women are not you know, overly represented. So I'm really pleased that um, Deborah has been um, well enough to come on board and be part of this conversation. But as I said, this year, uh, in terms of initially the COVID uh, pandemic that has taken over the world, um, you know, it had an impact internally, but, you know, in terms of our stop and search and the figures that went with that, it was one of these things where I thought, you know, surely, surely the, 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 the tickets and the, the restrictions would not impact on black communities in the same way that some of the other bits of legislation uh, has done. And, and how naive was I? Because, you know, these stats came out really quite quickly. And um, we saw that there was disproportionate issuing um, of tickets for COVID for black communities. And then this then led into the George Floyd thing. Now, ultimately for, for us as black communities, we get sent viral videos of things that are not going so well in policing. And, you know, for me internally, I raise these things because they are a concern for us as a community. And when that George Floyd video was put out, it was truly, um, well, as I said, I couldn't watch it. It was, it was, it was so, it was almost like even watching the first couple of seconds of it, I knew without even being told that what the end outcome was. And it was really, really hurtful because for us, it's almost like this is our lived experience as black people. Um, and, you know, for me, it was really important to, to raise that internally around how that, in, that, that video would play out here in the UK. But it's, it's because it is our lived experience, it's not really understood uh, around the issues of black people going about their daily lives um, and, and the fact that the impact of our interactions with police it has on, on, um, 
from communities. And when, um, you know, that, that happened and there was rumours of Black Lives Matters. Now, we've had Black Lives Matter marches in the past where it's a number of people that have, you know, doing their activism piece around sort of raising the issues. But for me, I, I, I personally didn't go on any of the marches, um, but my, I was completely taken aback when I saw on Sky News the fact that it wasn't just black people that were out there, um, you know, making their voices heard and being present and visible around the issues. It was, it was everyone and it was so many, it was young, it was old, it was black, it was white. And for me, that was a, a real turning point in, in, in understanding our lived experiences because some of the questions that were held internally was like, well, why, why is that impacting here in the UK? We don't get it, we don't understand it because there is a lack of understanding. Even from my perspective, I am, for me, every day is a learning day. Um, and when I watched the Samuel L. Jackson, um, Samuel L. Jackson program on Enslaved, again, it was a learning for me because again, I don't know half of that stuff. It's never been revealed. It's never been, been you know, put out there. And with the advent of um, technology and internet, you can search and find out all of these things. And I think that's what needs to happen. There needs to be an element of education and understanding about why black people, when we are sort of like having these interactions, that there's a legacy piece here. And that, you know, when people say Black Lives Matter, it's not just we're saying Black Lives Matter, but actually there needs to be an understanding of why that is. And I'm not sure that that is, is I'm, I'm, I'm more assured now, based on everything that's happened, that this has been opened up for a discussion. Because as I said, people go about their daily lives without really questioning you know, the disproportionality around stop and search and the disproportionality around misconduct and even down to the violent crime that we see happening on our streets where, you know, no one's really, it's happening to someone else somewhere else and it's not impacting on me. And I think, you know, the, 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 the march um, around Black Lives Matters has really opened up that, that point for discussion around well, why does something in America play out in on the shores of the UK and for me this is a really sort of like landmark moment where you know this is the time for us to be to be visibly present and vocal about some of the issues that Im impact on us it's not just bespoke to policing it's systemic it's within institutions up and down the country and across the world where actually this is what needs to be challenged. And I know that policing comes under the spotlight. Yes, it does. And rightly so, it should. But this is happening in somebody else's domain, in, you know, education, in the health service. You know, it is not specific to, to um, policing. And I think McPherson made reference to that. This is a community concern. The fact that our young people are, you know, involved in that, that is a community concern. Black communities have to step up, yeah? You know, growing up, I was never known by my name. I was never known as called Janet. I was always somebody's sister, 
you know, Auntie Matilda's daughter. It was always somebody else's name. It was never my name. And we have moved away from some of the things that we have grown up with around, you know, allowing for, you know, young people to, to, to know our young people. You know, if I was seen on the street, you know, outside of school, when, you know, school finished at 3.30 and at four o'clock I wasn't home, we never had mobiles then, yeah? But my mum would know that I was where I shouldn't have been and that was questionable. And I think in terms of community, we need to bring ourselves together. We need to be part of our young people's lives and have that same sort of embracing and the African um, saying around it takes a village to raise a child is, is more relevant now than it's ever been. And that would be my bit. But what I will say around black people is that, you know, we know about the whole divide and conquer bit. And for us as black people, it has to be about strength and unity. Yeah, one voice, strength and unity, and all of us pulling in the same direction. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janet, for that and for raising the issue of intersectionality and gender, bringing it right to the fore. And we're going to come back to that in the questions. So just um, as, uh, letting all of our um, listeners who are out there know, the question and answer room is open. Pop your questions into there. I'm monitoring them and we will try to get our speakers to answer them as we come to that section. But before we do that, we and noticing that we are keeping good with the gender um, differentiation. We now have um, Bevan Powell, MBE, who is going to speak to us. Bevan is currently the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisor to the Methodist Church in Britain. He's also a campaigner for race equality and human rights, and he spent most of his career working within the Met, serving in senior management as a member of the police force. It seems that he and Leroy had something in common because they like they retired at the same time or thereabouts. So, but that means retiring on to become patrons of um, the work that needs to continue to happen. So Bevan, I turn over to you for your um, time to tell us about your experiences and maybe your thoughts on ways forward as well. Thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank CTBI uh, for putting on this event, a very unique event um, and a, a debate which I think is, is very much needed. Earlier on, Leroy um, spoke about diversity in action and for me, in, in, in terms of my um, experience and time in the Metropolitan Police, it was also about faith in action. Um, because very much I saw the work that I did, and particularly with the Black Police Association, as faith driven. You know, uh, my belief in God and the work that we did was driven. And I believe was driven by the Holy Spirit. And I'll give an example. I remember once I was on a senior leadership program um, with a whole range of different specialists in the, in the police. And um, the facilitator said, you know, when looking at these types of problems, what are the types of things that you do? And um, everyone's going through SWOT analysis and tension analysis and, um, you know, looking at intelligence coming back from the community. And when it was my turn, I said, yeah, I totally agree with all of that, but I also pray. And I think that was something which 
was, was, was um, quite special about the, the police service, despite all of the criticism that it receives, it allows you to practice your faith. And one of the things that, you know, I would say within the, the, the BPA that many times before we, we, we led community events, we would get together and, and we would pray. And that was at the center of what we did. And I, I think without my faith, I don't think that myself and Leroy and Paul Wilson would have been able to give evidence um, to the MacPherson inquiry when we did, because that's quite a, quite a, it, it needs a huge amount of belief in, your, in yourself. But for me, it's a belief that what we were doing was right. And it was what we were called to do as Christians in recognizing having this moral compass that the experience of the Lawrence family and the way that they were treated by the police was wrong. And that I was a member of the police service, Leroy was a member of the police service, Paul, et cetera. And we wanted to say this was wrong. We wanted to right that injustice. And so for me, my faith has always been central um, to the way that I conducted myself and, and what I did uh, within the Metropolitan Police. And despite all of the criticisms, I'm extremely proud uh, that I was a member of the police family and today still continue um, to have dialogue and to influence um, policing, certainly in London, um, and to be able to work with, with Janet and Leroy, you know, to talk about these issues, even today, because it's, it's who I am, it's what I understand. And what I would say is, is this, as, as Janet said, the issues that impact the police, um, not just here in the UK, in the United States and in Europe, around race is not unique to the police service. I think what is unique is the context within which race meets the organization. So we see um, that if you are from a black and ethnic minority background in this country, the, more, the, the chances are you will live in the 10% most deprived areas of the country. And as a result of that, that deprivation will have an impact on your education, your social mobility, you will have multiple health needs. And COVID-19, the pandemic has laid that bare. It's opened up and shone a light on the inequalities that we still have in society today. And as Janet said, it's down to all of us. It's not a a black issue or white issue, it's a societal issue that we need to come together to resolve. The issues impacting our young people are societal issues. Before the lockdown, if you were black and under 25, your unemployment was running at about 40%. And that was at a time of the lowest unemployment rates within decades. The area that, that, I, that I, I, I grew up in, uh, in North Kensington, the life expectancy of, of people living in North Kensington, men 
had a 15 year shorter life expectancy than men in the south of the borough. Women had a 12 year um, shorter, shorter life expectancy than women in the south of the borough. And that's in the 21st century. In the wealthiest borough, not in England or in the UK, in Europe. And we saw the consequences of some of this deprivation uh, play out and it's still being played out in terms of the Grenfell fire. But coming back to um, policing, I, I think where we are today, I think we need an overhaul um, in terms of accountability. You know, Londoners um, contribute to a 2.5 billion pound organization called the Metropolitan Police. And what we need today to, to address some of these issues is greater accountability to Londoners, to local people. And, and I think until we get greater accountability, there will always be a sense that particular communities are not being served. And I think we just have to look at what's been played out on our television screens over the last nine, nine months. The issue with George Floyd being killed by officers, many have said, well, that's nothing to do with the UK. But if you, if you were black or from a black and ethnic minority uh, community, your experience of the criminal justice system will be different. It will be different. You're more likely to be stopped, if, you know, six to seven times more likely to be stopped on the streets of London if you're black. You're more likely to get a longer prison sentence if you're black compared to your white counterpart that has, that, that has committed the same offense. So we still have a long, long way to go in terms of addressing these issues. The police service has made major inroads, don't get me wrong, has made major inroads in, in terms of race equality and equalities um, in general. But I, as we said earlier, I think it's a societal, we now need society to come together to say, look, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. If there are parts of our community, whether they're black or white or from whatever ethnic group or whatever gender that are suffering injustice, it's, in an, it's an injustice to everyone. And I think in terms of our faith, we must be driven by that. We have to be driven by that. We are all flawed people. We are all flawed, you know, and when, when we see our imperfection and we are faced with, you know, and we see perfection in, in, in God, that's the point of transformation. That's the point of transformation. And in seeing that, we must want to see justice for everyone. And that's my hope that the, the um, not just the BPA, but, you, you know, officers and police staff in general within the Met, you know, see that point of imperfection and are driven to want to correct that injustice. Because Londoners deserve better than what we've seen. We've seen denials um, from uh, the leaders in the Metropolitan Police in terms of the way that um, black communities have been treated. The issues of stop and search the plague of violence that um, 
is currently uh, running through our communities with young people. Um, one of the things that we did in the BPA, we created the leadership program as, as um, Leroy spoke about earlier. Um, and we recognized that we needed to take a leadership stance because we understood those communities. You know, we started to work with communities that had high levels of violent crime, black communities. And we worked with those young people and we said, okay, what are some of the issues here? And one of the major issues is deprivation. And we recognized that for many of those young people, they weren't coming out with a prerequisite um, number of qualifications. So we created a leadership program, a BTEC, that was equivalent to um, two GCSEs. And we engaged, uh, well, it was thousands of young people each year, but actually on the program, it was about 500, program, 500 young people across uh, London and parents and teachers after those young people attended our programs would ask the question, what's happened? It's a completely different young person. But I believe what we were able to do was to give quality time to each individual child. And so for me, I, I think there's a, a, again, an opportunity for all of us to focus on the suffering that many of our young people are going through and families are going through um, to address these things because violent crime isn't just an issue for the police, it's an issue for society. And central to that, I believe, is, is the role of the church and other faith groups. Um, because there is a need for that moral compass, which sometimes can be buried in our political talk and speech. Um, and sometimes it's not fashionable to talk about our faith and what we're called to do, but it's absolutely essential in times like these where thousands upon thousands of people have been killed by a pandemic and it's opened up the stores of racism, of inequality, of poverty, of debt, these are societal issues and this hopefully the church and it is playing its part in pulling communities together to look at these issues and lobbying government for change and i'll leave it there thank you thank you so much bevan um you put some challenges there to the society the church and the police force but you also put out some um ideas about where the opportunities could lie and you ended on a message of hope so let's see how we can take it forward to our finally our final panelist to speak before the questions is uh deborah and she is, I think we're going to, yes, Deborah Akinlawan. Deborah is a detective constable, has been with the Met for 26 years, served as a uniformed officer and in CID at Lambeth for 11 years before joining the Homicide Command, worked on several high profile cases, particularly in her role as a family liaison officer for 10 years before becoming a family liaison officer to uh, liaison officers across the Met. She's currently the chair for the Met Police Christian Police Association. She was awarded the Queen's Police Medal in 2020 New Year's Honours List for Distinguished Service to Policing. I know Janet is still waiting there. And uh, Deborah, could you now talk us through your experiences and maybe some challenges and some opportunities that you see that are there going forward? Thank you very much and a good evening to everybody. 
And before I start, I would just like to say it's an absolute honor to be alongside my panelists. We stand on the shoulders of Leroy and Bevan um, and Janet and myself, we work together uh, and have worked together and we've known each other since we were children. Um, but I'm really honored to, to be among the panelists that are here and to be part of this, which I think is really important. Um, I'm gonna start with when I joined. I joined in August of 1994, and I believe the Lord called me to become a police officer. When I told my house group leader that I was gonna join the police, apart from looking really shocked, because I wouldn't say boo to a goose, and I was a really quiet person, um, he, he said to me, right, he said, and this was 94, he said, you're gonna have three things, sorry, three things against you. One, you're black, one, you're female, one, you're Christian. And I thought, charming, thanks for that. That's really encouraging. But I knew that the Lord had called me to this role. When I joined the police, I actually found those to be my strengths instead of my weaknesses. And the reason why I say that is because opportunities opened up and Leroy's mentioned one of them, I think, in a Damarola Taylor inquiry that myself and Janet worked on in terms of we were able to go out to the North Peckham estate and talk to people in the community because we had that background, because we had that experience, that life experience, we could bring it to the job. In terms of being a Christian, that was great because we had opportunities to talk to our colleagues and we still do today. And being the lead for the, the Christian Police Association, I lead people of all colors, all races. So just before I go on again, I just wanna pay respect to all my colleagues out there, decent hardworking colleagues of every color that do their work with a sense of justice um, in the right way. And really at this point in time, because I've talked to many of our colleagues and that's where I'm gonna come from tonight, talking to our colleagues that, come, that are really kind of quite, there's a lot of hurting people and on both sides. So you have the hurting black community, you have hurting black officers who are straddling the lines of I'm part of the community and I'm part of the police. I'm being blamed for this, but I'm also being hurt by this. So I'm quite animated when I speak and I, and I don't kind of talk really policey, I just talk like me. So you'll pardon me, that's just the way I speak. Um, so you've got people straddling the lines of I'm hurt in all ways. And I actually found that myself when I, Watched the George Floyd incident, I cried. I mean, I wept. And I thought, how do I respond to this? I'm black and I'm part of the organization in terms of the police worldwide being blamed for this. So you've got the, I'm part of this. But I'm hurting as well because this, this really affects me. How do I respond to that? And that is where you have black officers and how we're affected. And then you get the white officers, the ones that actually do do their jobs and they do it well. And they are hurt because they're constantly being, as it were, blamed for everything. It's literally like we are saying, everybody's responsible for what is going on. And it hurts a lot of people. We have made mistakes. Members of the Met have made mistakes. You can't, you can't deny that. There have been issues, and in the past, 
watching the drama on Sunday, there have been issues. There have also been improvements and we thank God for the McPherson inquiry. But there are hurts on both sides. And I'm, I'm kind of coming more from a, how this affects people. Everybody is hurt in one way or another. And there are generations of hurt that have been passed down from generation to generation that has come into our young people. Even on the, on the side of the white community, there's generations. I mean, children are not born prejudiced. They're not born to, it, it is taught to them from a young age. And that's where you get the, the, the anti, I can't remember, it was the anti-BLM protests that were, that, were, that were going on when we had the BLM protests. You had people that literally believed they were right in what they were doing. They were wrong. That's what they've been taught. That's what has come down the generations. The reason why I'm going in that direction is because I found in my time in the Metropolitan Police that education, talking, sitting down and explaining, this is what is going on. This is how we feel and this is why we feel this way has actually brought results. And I'll give an example. I was part of a proactive team and I was the only black officer in that proactive team. And that's happened many times when I'm the only black officer within that team. And I remember we were having the meeting, it was about Lambeth and there was lots of robberies. And halfway through this meeting, um, one of the officers said to me, um, oh, but we all know that all black people are, are responsible for all the crimes in, in Lambeth. And I kind of shot him a look like, what? And I waited for someone to say something and no one said anything. And I sat and I stewed. And I thought, right, if I speak now, I'll probably come across as an emotional female. I need to calm down and figure out what, how I'm gonna handle this. I went, I went into the ladies' toilet as I do and I prayed. And I actually called up a friend and I said, am I being oversensitive here? This is what was said. And they said, no, you're not being oversensitive. This is like, not right, this can't be said. What are you gonna do? He said, right, you can, you've got three options. You can, you can make a complaint. I thought, nah, it's not, I'm not gonna do that. He says, okay, third option, you can do nothing. I said, I'm not doing that either. He said, well, you can talk to him. Okay. So I sat him down and talked to him. I think it probably was some months before that the McPherson report had come out, the, the, the results of the McPherson report had come out and I think it was the Sun newspaper that had the, the heading, all police officers are racist on the front, literally, and it was like a red background, I think with white writing. I mean, it was just out there in your face, all police officers are racist. And um, I really believe God gave me the wisdom when I was speaking to this man, because I said to him, you really insulted me when you said something in the meeting. He said, oh, what did I say? And I told him what he said and he go, oh no, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that because, and I said, no, do you remember that Sun article that said all police officers are racist? Said, yeah, that was so unfair. That's literally, they're tiring us all the same brush. And I said, that's exactly what you've done to all the black people in Lambeth. That could be my auntie. That could be my mum, my brother, my dad. That could be anybody of my relatives that you're talking about. You have done exactly what you're saying everyone else is doing to you and you could literally see the penny drop. And everything that's happened this year has brought about opportunity for conversation. 
I think Bevan mentioned it, education, talking to people. Some people actually do not get it. There is, in a sense, and I don't like using this word, but there is, to a degree, some kind of ignorance about what racism is. What is it? Why are you saying that this is racist? But when you sit down and explain to people, this is what I'm talking about. These are the experiences that I've been through. Actually, it begins to make sense because you'll have a lot of officers say, I don't see anything racist happening. Well, you're not going to see it because you haven't had the experience because you're not me. But when you sit and you explain to people, and that is that is kind of one of my passions is communication, is talking to people, is, is explaining, is reasoning with them. If I can change one person at a time and they can, their minds can change and their hearts can change because we have said something to them, we have explained to them, we have reasoned them, we've got them to understand this is where we're coming from and this is why it gets to us. This is why it hurts us. One person, if we start down the road with one person, not in an angry, let's just talk to people. There's, I realized this year there was so much anger, so much anger. And there's a verse in the Bible that talks about anger does not bring about the righteousness, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. There's a lot of anger, but that's because there's a lot of hurt. So one, I think there needs to be a lot of healing. I think particularly within the black community because we have been hurt down the generations. You watch the, the drama on Sunday and for some people that I just raise it all up again. Oh my gosh, I remember that experience. What, what, what emotions does that raise up? There'll be pastors listening to this. Uh, there'll be reverends listening to this. If a member of your church came into church and said to you, I've had 40 years of abuse and, and insult, and I've been physically abused and emotionally abused and, 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 da, 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 and go on with this story of this is what has happened down the generations. A pastor, or a reverend or a pastoral person will go, mate, you need to let go of that hurt so you can move forward. There needs to be education, there needs to be healing, um, even if it's one person at a time. And as I said to, I can't remember who I said it to the other day, and I actually was in an interview on Premier, I said that laws won't change people's hearts. Only Jesus can. We have been talking this talk for many years, many years. We prayed and we've talked. Something needs to change. We talk about stop and search. Officers get it wrong. There's, there have been so many instances. I get sent videos, as Janet was talking about, of, of, of different instances where people have been stopped. And you kind of sit and you go, oh, great, another one. Ugh. But you know, I think to myself, there are many things, and I know we talk about institutional racism, but when I sit and talk to people, or when I look around, I'm a bit of a people watcher, I realize that if you look deep, you'll find that a lot of our colleagues don't have any black friends within their circle. We are the only people they see. Um, what they see is, what they know is what they see on TV. 
and what they see or what they know is what they've experienced on the street. So you get people from everywhere coming and joining the net that actually have no knowledge of the black community. And that's another reason why I think education is crucial. Getting officers to know about the black community. There was, a, there was an, uh, uh, I can't remember, initiative. And I think it was, I can't remember his name, the man that had been stopped so many times. And he's decided to come into Scotland Yard and talk to the new recruits about, about black people and about their misconceptions and preconceptions. I thought that was a brilliant idea because you had officers going, well, I didn't know that because I have never mixed with black people. I don't have any black people myself, so I don't know anything. But all I know is what I see on the news and all I see is, and most of the time it's, it's a really bad portrayal. The media have a lot to do with that. But moving that aside, us as the church, unity need to bring about unity again. Thank you, Deborah. I'm going to stop you at that point. It's a brilliant point to stop on. I asked you to give us some challenges and to give us some opportunities and uh, windows into the, the next set, next stage. So thank you very much to all of our speakers. I'm going to turn over to my co-host, uh, Les, to start us off with the question sections. We've got quite a number of questions, uh, which yeah. is why we wanted to leave time for that. So Les, Isa, thank you. Thank you. Trust, over thank to you. And what we're gonna do, perhaps what we'll do, we'll ask a question and perhaps a current serving officer and a former service. So Leroy and Janet, probably you could respond to this one. Just, just let me just read this to you from a mother. My son is a 19-year-old gentle giant. He's kind, friendly, and loving. He did very well in his A-levels and is now at university. He lives at home with me and takes the bus to uni. When he started, he would get stopped, stopped and searched regularly by the police not far from his university, sometimes as much as twice a day. He didn't tell me anything until recently since the pandemic started, I have noticed that he, um, that he has developed anxiety, not going out at all. I worry about his mental health. He now suffers from anxiety. We have booked counseling for him. Any advice? Okay. Just, you know, mothers who are writing in about their concern for their children and I just want to pick it up with another question. What has changed 40 years on, Leroy? And if we could, because we've got lots of questions. So if it could be as succinct as possible. Thanks, Leroy. Yeah, I mean, one of the main things that's changed is we, we, we talk about uh, our mental um, condition, our health, our ill health. And it's good that at least the mother is detecting that because I, I remember it, when I was a youngster, it was real taboo to say there was um, any sort of mental um, condition. My, my actually put in the book, my, my mother um, had a, a long episode of being diagnosed as schizophrenic and I never spoke about it. 
and sometimes it impacted on my my education and I remember teachers used to criticize me for being um you know maybe not as active in in class as I could be because sometimes I would be up late nursing my mother because my dad would be at work and, and I would have to be the carer and so so but I I'd like to think there is um communication and I I know that there's especially COVID has had a massive impact on people and the sense of isolation and the barriers it can create for people that it can present itself um, as anxiety and other forms of apprehension. And I myself, you know, if I wasn't um, as busy, I know that those things can get to you. Like, like everyone else, it's a human condition. We're supposed to fellowship, we're supposed to interact. And I think the, the main thing is, even before um, COVID really kicked in, is this form of communication being online. It's better than nothing. And, and I, I, I think it's really important that um, the mother has said, listen, I'm picking this up. So I, I know there's a lot of um, grassroots organizations in the community who can assist with that, even if it's remotely. Um, I know lockdown has changed uh, over and today, it's been eased, even though we're, we're, we're tier two. But again, especially if it's um, quite an acute medical condition, I think it's really important that um, advice and um, some form of support, whether it's medical or otherwise, is sought. And it hopefully, it will be culturally specific because one of the things that my mother felt was being misdiagnosed for actually decades uh, and we didn't realize it and, and, and once it was highlighted there, there was uh, a massive improvement. The so, mother was implying, seemed to imply that the fear of the son of the police being stopped has added to his level of anxiety well that um, and that's why I, I was saying um earlier that i what, okay one of the things I, I i'm really looking at um in um since the red white and blue is i want to do some trauma-informed analysis of people being subject to stop and search and i, I i've um, linked up with some academics at uh, westminster uh, university and we're going through the ethics um, and, uh, application and as well as the funding application. But because we want to know uh, where is those triggers that cause anxiety, even if it's not stop and search or, or the use of handcuffs. But where, where there is, there should be some sort of qualitative assessment. So we're, we're actually doing that to, to ensure that officers know the impact and senior leaders know how to supervise the officers so the the outcome of that stop and search is um, less um, demeaning or disrespectful because that and and the officers are not seen as an occupying force but a police service so that those are sort of things that i'm doing but uh, you know and also we're, we're speaking to um, senior leaders in fact i've got a meeting with the Deputy Commissioner Steve House, because I'm part of a Black Men for for Change, um, we're based in Hackney, but we we we're talking Pan London, so we 
going to be speaking with uh, Deputy Commissioner Steve House around how the impact of this, the, this type of policing, excessive force is having an impact on our young people. And I, I would welcome um, hearing from the mother because I think those capturing those voices is really important. And that's the trauma-informed work that I'm, I'm doing. And I would really like um, the mother to, to, to communicate with me on the chat and, and I'll um, make sure that we follow up through that qualitative research I speak about. Thank you. I wonder if Janet could come before Rosemary asks the next question. Janet, could you come in on that, particularly the question about 40 years on, what has changed? So for me, for the mother perspective, is that I feel her pain in terms of I've got a 19-year-old nephew who was up from Portsmouth University and was stopped and searched and he had done nothing wrong, but not had the communication bit, handcuffs were put on, and he was left with that physical scar of having the handcuffs put on. There was no resistance, but it doesn't need to be. You've got metal touching skin, so I feel your pain. What I would say is that you shouldn't have to accept it. There is, there is data that su suggests that 80% of people that are stopped, nothing is found, yeah? 80%, only 20% gives you a positive outcome but we don't get 80% of the complaints in. So we don't get communities saying, actually, this is wrong, this is not right, and complaining about it, and therefore holding police to account. So in that regards, I would definitely say, if, if that is happening to your son, you need to complain, all right? It might feel that the process is there and there's nothing that's gonna be done, but part of it is, is being, hold, being able to hold the police to account, being able to have your say and have them look into it. And if that doesn't work, then there's the IOPC, the Independent Office of Police Complaints and MOPAC that, again, you can appeal to. So I would definitely say, don't let this lie and definitely put in a, a complaint around that. Because unless that information is coming in, then again, it's not being dealt with. The complaints around stop and search are really, really small. And we need to have those voices within the complaint system saying this is not acceptable. So for me, I would definitely say to the mother to put in a complaint or, you know, for her son to put in a complaint Thank and have you. something done. Because that accountability piece and, and the feeling that, you know, you're not just, you know, part of the reason why we don't do it is because we have no confidence in it. But you have to raise your voice. You have to make that clear. So 40 years on, what has changed? It absolutely feels like nothing has However, as Deborah alluded to, there has been a lot of work going on in policing to try and change the culture from within, because until the culture from within changes, that is the only way that it spills out into our community and we start giving the service that our communities deserve. Um, there are a lot of issues uh, internally around communication and how officers um, uh, uh, are able to, to go out there and do their job effectively. Part of it is what Deborah was saying around, you know, how many officers actually live in London? You know, how many of them actually understand the dynamics? How many of them actually have black friends that they are, are mixing with? And that is a big issue. And one of the is initiatives that I know the policing has is they've now returned the London criteria, a living criteria, where you have to be have lived in London for a certain amount of time to be accepted into the police, which is a good thing. 
because the London culture is different to, you know, some of the outlying areas, not necessarily some of the more cosmopolitan places like West Midlands and Liverpool and Bristol. But ultimately, there needs to be an understanding that the London culture around the, the diversity, the mix, the integration that happens here is, is unique. And that if you are not part of that and you live outside of that, then you are not understanding what it is to be living in London. So that is one of the initiatives that goes on. And I think that actually more of that sort of thing needs to happen. But it does feel the same. I get that. But there are things in the mix that are happening. Thanks. Rosemary? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. And thank you, Leroy, for those answers. And maybe we'll turn to uh, Bevan and Deborah for the next two, but then perhaps maybe all of you can answer this because the question is from Dawn Martin, who says, and I, and I will say that she should say both girls and boys, but she said, bearing in mind everything you've said and the challenges that you face, should uh, black boys and girls be encouraged to join the police force Given your experience, is there any truth in the adage, if you can't beat them, join them? After all, it must be nigh on impossible to effect any real change in an institution like the Met or other police forces from the outside. So two questions. Should we encourage our young people to join the police? And by joining the police, can, you, can they really and can you really effect change from within? Bevan and then Deborah, please. Um, I, I, what I would say is this: um, we should we should always try and encourage any of our children, whatever their aspirations are, they should be they should be able to follow that through, whatever institution they wish to join. So most definitely, I would say encourage um, your young person to join. The responsibility of ensuring that it's an environment where your young person can uh, flourish and, and achieve their aspirations rests with everyone that's within the Metropolitan Police Service. And I know we keep saying Metropolitan Police Service, but I know CTBI is covering the country. So whichever force area you, 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 you come from, you know, we, we, we have to bring about change that irrespective of what your ethnicity is, you can, you can achieve your aspiration within the organization. Uh, can we bring about change? Absolutely. And I believe that, you know, the, the, the Black Police Association has, um, you, you know, achieved a great deal in terms of legislation, change of uh, policies within the police service. So absolutely, you can bring about change. And it's not just within the police. If you're in the church and you're Black within uh, you, you know, one of our majority uh, uh, denominations, you know, the same issues apply. You can bring about change. You can bring about change in the health service. You can bring about change in education. We can bring about change wherever we are in society. But remember, it's not just about us as black people. Racism will not be solved because we are activists today. It will be solved because white people recognize their whiteness, their privilege, and start to address those issues. Thank you. And Deborah? Is Deborah, yeah, is Deborah frozen? You're on mute. There you go, I'm back. Um, please encourage 
your young ones to join the police because being a police officer, speaking for myself has been brilliant. It's one of the best things I ever did. The, the diverse opportunities, the fact that you're serving the community, um, what you give back into the community, the people that you help, the justice that you bring, the amount of detailed investigations, the fact that it's so diverse, you're not sitting behind the desk, uh, every day is different. Yes, there are the difficulties and it's telling our young people to be confident in themselves and just be themselves when they come in. And yet, yes, it will be difficult, but that, like my dad told me, just answer them back. And that's what I've been doing for the past 26 years. And I've loved it. Um, can we affect change from within? Yes, we can. Every day we can. Talking to our colleagues, Bevan's mentioned it as well. We can affect change. The more people that join and see the things that are wrong, that person, that child that joins could be the person that has that solution to that issue that can change that particular thing. So don't discourage people. And if it's right for them and this is God's calling for them, that's where God's calling them to, because it is a calling, encourage them to join. Can I give a really quick example in yeah. terms of change? So I would say yes. And the reason why I say yes is this, is that diversity is a nine protected characteristics. And in policing, policing has always been a very male dominated environment. Now, in terms of women in policing, we nationally are now at, I think it's about 29, probably hit the 30% um, marker in terms of representation, which we know 30% is tipping point for change. Within the gender category, because more women have joined, even though it was a very male dominated environment, we have our first female commissioner, okay? And we have women that are represented in all of the ranks and police posts within policing. So that can be the same for race in terms of having more, because it, it, it's, it's about the numbers. The more people you have on, the more change will come about. So for me, it's a yes, because that is the only way that we will really have effective change. Thank you very much for that. Could I just add something very quickly? Yes. yes. Um, the mere fact that we got the Black Police Association still in existence 25 years later is an example of change. Because I can assure you, they didn't even want us to be in existence when we started to meet before we launched in 94. So our mere presence will affect change. And it does let officers think twice. It, maybe not in the heat of the rough and tumble of an arrest or anything like that, or they're imposing their power. But I can assure you, when it comes to being more accountable and transparency in the organization, it, it can make change. And it's not just about numbers. Let me just say about that. It's around positioning and, and influence and being clear of your own identity. When I joined the Met, I, I said, I'm a black man who happened to be a cop because here I am in retirement and still a black man. Um, and I also realize there's no no-go era for activism. We need to be active with identity, with our faith, not any way being hesitant or apologetic and, and speaking truth to power. It doesn't matter about our rank, 
uh, or, or, or experience we can be, because especially now with, with social media, I see a lot of officers being extremely clear and concise about where the organization should be. And I, I, so I think in this communication revolution we're in, there can be a lot of change, especially as long as that person goes in knowing the environment in which they're going into and being prepared. And so it, they should do as much support, get a good mentor, get those sort of um, applications in place so that you're equipped. You don't want to go in a blazing fire uh, without proper equipment. You need to be prepared. And I and, and, and know at times it can be really tough, but you know, you need to be physically, psychologically and spiritually prepared and be purposeful. I, I, I think that that is it. And it's not just about you as an individual, but the greater good. The, to, on that point, one of the questions came in, what kept you all going, considering the length of time you've served, all of you, what's kept you going when when you were subject to racist behavior um, within the service? What kept you guys going? Well, I'll, I'll just start to say, I, I know my, my, my service is split into two halves. My, my determination um, going in with my identity, because I also spent some time in Jamaica as a child, so I knew I saw black officers and I knew that that was the job for me, even though it was going against my initial work in science. But I knew that that was for me. But I, I, I seem to be relying on just my, my, my um, skills and abilities and, and not resting on my faith. And, I, and that, that, that for me was um, more of a factor once the, the BPA was, um, was, you know, we set it up to, to, to really affect change and change the rule book. We actually changed the rule book in so many ways and it, it still has a legacy now. So my faith then came into action a lot more and it was my anchor. It gave me self-confidence. I knew it wasn't just about um, my career. It, there was a purpose. There was... In a lot of ways, uh, I, I felt there was a mission uh, and I, I had to have a vision for it. So if, if I had a vision, that helped me because, you know, they say people perish when they have no vision. And, and that was uh, really strong. And, and faith in action is key to that. Going into any situation, whether I'm being investigated or I'm going in an assessment or going into corridors of power, commissioner's office, wherever, home, home secretary, I pray into that, into that room. That. That, that, that's, that's God's ground. So I'm going to be effective and efficient. So my, my faith was my anchor. It gave me the resilience and, and to know that I've got the holy nation, the royal priesthood behind me in what I had to do. Amen. Me, yeah, so for me, it's, it's, it has to be my family. My family have been absolutely, um, and in particular my daughter, who um, wouldn't probably have joined the police, but she, she hasn't joined the police, but she is a public servant in terms that she is a district nurse with the NHS. And um, the fact that she has my grandson now um, is, again, for me, just 
it reinforces the the need for having good family and good friends and I'll give a shout out to Deborah and Tracy who work with me in the BPA office who have kept me sane on many an occasion in terms of my own well-being and always inquire about you know my health my, my mental health and my current executive I know some of you are going to be online again you know just for bearing with me in terms of the vision that we have for the BPA because without their support and without me doing it for them then actually I'm not sure that we would still be here so I'm really grateful for family and for really good friends being around me and as for faith my mum prays for me every day. Thank you. Um, I would say my faith, big thing. As soon as I know that God has called me uh, to this job, um, like I said before, I, I wouldn't say be to a goose. It, you know, when the, the Bible talks about the, 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 the God uses the, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. If, if someone had said like 20 something years ago that Deborah would join the police, everyone will say, I, I don't think so. Um, not the person that you think would join. So when I knew God had called me to join, I knew that I had to rely totally on God, totally on God. And I had, knew that I had to know when to pick my battles and when not to. Um, and I can remember that the times when I wanted to give up, literally God would just send someone in to bring encouragement. I remember during my street duties, one of the street duties instructors said to me, you're not going to last two years. And I thought, you know what, if God put me in, no one can get me out. And that was my thing, that whenever anything happened, I'd be like, well, Lord, you called me here. If you called me here, no one can get me out of here but you. When you say leave, I leave. And that is what I found. I'm still here. The person that said that has gone and didn't go in a very good way. So God has fought for me all the way through and he's been my rock and I wouldn't have got here without him. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you for that. And, and it's the same with me that, you know, my faith in God has been the thing that has um, driven me. But I think at the same time, it's, you, you know, God brought together a, a set of very special people, Leroy, Deborah, Janet, and so many others that we encouraged each other and we could see God in each other. And it helped us to drive the changes. So you had the courage. You weren't worried about rank and grade. You had a calling and that's what drove so many of us. Um, so for me, the, you, you know, my views and who I am today really as a, is as a result of working with so many special people, you know, and, and three of them are, are here tonight, but also the fact that we have a, a, a shared uh, relationship and, and love of God. Sorry, can I just make an additional um, request? Apologies. I missed out someone who, again, has really helped on my journey, and that is Melinda. Melinda Sora, I mentioned you a full name so that you, you, I've got your text and yes, you have been integral in my sort of um, being here today. Thank you. 
Thank you all for answering about, you know, the faith, the faith that has kept you, that has anchored you, the family um, that have supported you and maybe friends or colleagues who have just kept you uh, continuing to serve even through the most challenging times. One of our questioners, actually a couple of them, wanted to ask you about others who could support you as allies along the way. And the question from uh, Val um, speaks about um, this whole debate at the moment on contemporary white allies who, how can they, she asks, how can those who are white listen, engage, serve and speak most wisely in solidarity and partnership that's helpful and not dominating. So, who would like to answer that one, please? I think for me, the, the starting point. Oh, sorry, Janet, were you going to say? No, you can. You go. Ahead. My point is really simple. In terms of, I heard this said once, and it's something that sort of like resonated with me. In terms of, um, you know, that kind of support that we need. And, and allyship and, and that that the quote that I heard was that it wasn't black people that ended slavery it was the white people in power so for me having those allies in those spaces doing the work that we don't necessarily have access to and having those conversations that we wouldn't necessarily be in those spaces I think is key so I absolutely would be supportive of having allies in terms of this agenda and, and for me, I think um, it's, it is about allies, but I think it, it's, it's a team effort. It's about all of us ending racism and injustice wherever it is. But I think the starting point is that we, we talk about who we are as black people. And I don't think that white people talk about themselves as white people. They don't recognize the, the, the privilege. And we talk about um, you know, the privileges that, um, the unearned privileges that, that they have, um, and, but it's never spoken about. So that's the starting point. We, we, we have to really start talking about and be courageous to talk about whiteness, to talk about privilege, because that's some of the sticking points that will stop us from making any kind of significant progress in terms of the race agenda. We need to have those conversations in the 21st century. So it's not about, well, it is about our lives, but it's about all of us as human beings coming together to say, what is, how, how do we end the injustice that some of us experience? And it's about recognizing who we are and the role that we each of us has to play in ending the injustices. Just, we've only got four minutes left and it's been a great evening and we really, there's so much things that we need to cover. Now, one of the biggest topics in, our, um, in current today is young people, seriously violent. <clears throat> and the fact that many people are trying to do, play their role to end this. And on one hand, we have the police, the senior team to come up with community cohesion. On the other hand, we have all sorts of incidents with young people um, finding it that they're being targeted, ar arrested, not lawfully and put in handcuffs. And young people are feeling 
How can I work with the police? How can I trust the police? And then we have um, the situation where our young people are being taken to courts and they're in prison. How do we manage to find that, you know, strategy that says we're working together with the police up in the top, in the top floor of Scotland Yard, working effectively with the police on the ground and winning over the trust and confidence of young people and our community at large. You know, perhaps you could just be as succinct as possible, because that's a big challenge for us today. Can I just say, um, in terms of what we, we, we did with Voyage, um, because we, we understand education is the key, and, and we had to help our young people to know their rights and responsibilities, develop positive peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, and to know they can change their environment and not become a product of it. So that, that was really important for us to give back and, and, and for uh, our young people to, to strive and, and not just survive. So I, I think all of those things um, helped us to get real analysis and, and qualitative data to say to the Met, this is what's happening. Uh, you know, when you are carrying out your policing, it's just enforcement and it's hard hitting. You're alienating the, the people that you need to be working with. To, to, to improve things and to get the intelligence to be more proactive so you can target the right sort of people and don't stop people unnecessarily. Because um, we know the hit rate for, for getting weapons is less than 5% of all stops nationally. So stop harassing people unnecessarily, work with young people. And, and, and I think we, we start to see that because some of the, the, the mayor's action plan at the moment it's seeing they need to target young people because they're not engaging with young people, especially since um, community cops were reduced and safe schools officers were reduced. There's been that disconnect and they're not, they need to re-engage with young people because of course we know a lot of the violence is on the streets where young people are frequenting. So the, the, capturing the evidence of, of what we do with young people to really impact on the commissioner and other chief constables to say, listen, this is what's happening. And because we have a shared common experience with that group, you know, because we're, we're, we're mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, grandparents, etc., we speak truth to power to ensure that our evidence is clear and concise and starts to make a difference. And that's, that's why I'm still an activist and, a, and, and you know, doing um, advocacy work in the community now because we still need to be doing this because they're in denial and they're not accepting the impact of their tactics around the target group. So we, we and early intervention prevention programs is key to, to key to that, but we need to be evidence-based to show to those in, in the boardrooms, this is what's happening on our streets. Thank you so much, Leroy, because I think that's going to be the last answer that we can fit into this time. It's unbelievably that we've been going for 90 minutes and there's still so many questions not, not have been, that have not been answered and so much more that we could say. We'd like to thank everyone for joining us this evening for what's been a stimulating discussion on a key issue in our country today. Really want to thank Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, Richard Reddy and Bob Fife for uh, putting this on and just being the energy uh, behind getting all of this together. And of course, we'd like to thank our speakers for leading our conversation, for answering questions and actually to leaving us with more questions than the answers that we've got. There's this, we need to have a part two. Les.
Thank you all very much. And thank you all. Please do, um, do send your questions in because um, CTBI will hold those. And these are things that we're going to develop. Watch this space because we want to continue this conversation. It's such an important, vital conversation at this time, particularly if we want to see our city a rich place, a place where everyone matters and everyone can benefit from it. Thank you all very much. Good night. And the Lord bless you all. Stay safe, everyone. Have a good rest of the evening. Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons licence. <laughs>